The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we do rejoice in singing as we think about your kingdom coming here and yet not fully here. Coming to one day take over all of the earth so that your glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. And struck, Lord, as we sang that song of the contrast between a, a sober-minded prayer asking you to do work in us that is perhaps hard and then a, an, exu, an exuberant song of, of joy right next to each other. That, that is the Christian life. Sober-minded and seeking repentance and rejoicing, confident that you win. Both side by side. And we bless you for that reality and ask you to help us to live in that reality. Because it is difficult and hard and jubilant and hopeful all at once. Every day is like that for us. I think here on November 11th, I think of some people perhaps who... Every day this year, every year this day rolls around, think of past sacrifices and past service themselves or loved ones and maybe have a hard time coming and rejoicing at church. Lord, we thank you for, we thank you for the fact that we can worship in, in this way, in this place. We thank you for using people from our country to secure that freedom. And I pray you would help them today to deal with, if there are memories that are hard, to deal with that and to rejoice at the same time. And if there are, Lord, among us people who deal with relationships in marriage or relationships with kids or parents or relationships at work that are hard, maybe where they see their sin or they see other people's sin, where they're suffering, Help them to deal with it, Lord, and to face it repentantly and humbly and, and to seek, as was prayed, to seek your work in them to refine them and grow them and also then to rejoice with freedom and abandon that your kingdom is coming. Lord, there are people who need you. In these ways and in other ways, we need you. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw near that you would show yourself strong and that you would do good to us, this particular good to us of bringing us into a fuller experience of your good and glorious reign that is over us now to grow us and will one day be over all of the earth with a great liberty and a great freedom and a great joy. Do good to us today, Lord. Help us to experience this more to believe it more and bring it in its fullness. Give us your spirit, Lord, this morning to open up the word and make it clear, I pray. Help me to express truth clearly. Help us to hear it clearly and understand it and be changed by it. Spirit of God, do that work among us, I ask you. That Christ the King would be honored and that we as people would live submitted to his reign, rejoicing. Thank you, Lord. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 9, a new beginning in the book. Last week, we crossed over the bridge that is chapter 8, crossed over the bridge out of the section of the judges and into the section of the monarchy, this period of the monarchy among the people of Israel. We cross out of that section that has Samuel as the main character and into the section that has Saul as the main character. Right at this point we saw in chapter 8 that Samuel was getting on in years and had appointed his sons to be judges over the people, which was wrong for a couple of different reasons. And people resisted that, told him so, and then tragically we saw offered up another plan. Unfortunately, they asked for a king. 
And asking of the king for the king itself, as we saw, chapter 7, verse 7, God clarified this for us. Asking for the king itself was not wrong. It was that they were asking to get rid of the Lord as king. They were rejecting his reign over them, wanting and seeking out something much more tangible and dependable and safe. They get their hands on and could, could hold on to and control. A king like the other nations have a mighty man who, who with a, a strong arm and a strong government and a strong army would go out before them and fight their battles for them and protect them. That's what they wanted. So they set aside the king, the king who was the Lord, to seek another one. Verse 20 clarifies that for us. God had done that very thing, gone out before them and fought their battles for them and delivered them. He'd done that for them so many times. But they wanted something someone else that would leave them less vulnerable and less in need of faith. And that was the warning to us, the challenge to us last week also, because we, like them, are inclined towards seeking stuff we can get our hands on and hold on to and control. And we do not like being left vulnerable, having to trust the God who supernaturally works often on a different timetable in a different way than we like. So the text brings up that point before us and challenges us to trust the Lord and not set Him aside. We need to take care on that front. That was last week. But last week also leads us into the future where the Lord does what He said He would do. He's going to provide a king for them, He said. He's going to give them what they asked for. And that brings us into chapter 9 which starts us off on what seems to be an entirely different path. Some ordinary story that apparently has nothing to do with where we left off at the end of chapter 8. Two totally separate things, which is exactly how it struck this guy named Saul, which is the point. Let me read the passage, 1 Samuel chapter 9. And we'll pass back through it to clarify some details before moving on to make some general observations. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, passed through the land of Shalashah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there's a man of God in this city, and, and he's a man who is held in honor. All that he says come true, comes true. So... Now, let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What, what do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver. Then I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he's just ahead of you. Hurry, he has just now come to the city. Because of the pe- he's come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, go up, for you meet them immediately. 
So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He is the who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? And Samuel answered Saul, I am a seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? Is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they, had, when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. That's the word of the Lord, First Samuel chapter 9. The chapter begins in a manner similar to chapter 1, verse 1. By bringing up a random man, a man of wealth and of standing, and explaining him to us all for the sake of introducing us to his son. In this case, a man named Saul, verse 2, a man who is a handsome young man, a term which is less about his physical beauty, not that it doesn't include anything about his physical beauty, but it's less about that and is more about just his well-rounded person. So we might perhaps in our minds think of it as a fine young man. Saul's a fine young man. He is a full-grown adult. He's not a boy. He's a full-grown adult, adult male, but he is in his prime. He is full of vigor, and he is big. And, not unexpectedly, he works for his dad on the ranch or the farm. And his dad just lost some donkeys, which is not an exciting thing. But donkeys are important. They, they are an important commodity, and they're gone, and it seems they've worn it off, and so they have to be tracked down. And so Saul gets an assignment, and he and a servant pack a few provisions and head out to look for him. This is plain as dirt, ordinary life. I've never been a farmer, but anybody who's been a farmer or a rancher or whatever can, can identify with this story so far. You've got a hole in the fence, a gate left open, a couple head of livestock wandered off, and... Oh, Goodness gracious. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Well, they're not going to come back by themselves, so there's nothing left to do but go find them. So, I'm not going to do it, son. And off they go. And they wander around the hill country of Ephraim, 
And over this place and to that place, probably looking for tracks first and then asking people, have you seen any random donkeys? And then looking in places where animals are prone to bed down and they just just can't find them. And they're gone, not for a few hours, but they're gone for a few days now. They just can't find them. And by the time they reach the land of Zuf, just at that time, Saul's had enough. They're gone. It's time to go home. And he tells his servant, we better go back. But the servant replies, probably glancing at the city that they just happened to be near by now. You know, I think, I think there's a man of God, meaning a prophet. I think there's a prophet in that city. Why don't we ask him? And he'll, he'll tell us what we should do. Ah, Saul, that's not going to work. Because we don't have anything to give him. Custom in that time, a, a person like Saul, some wanderer looking for a favor, approaching a, a significant person like a prophet would, would give him a gift to kind of honor him and compensate him for the favor. We don't have anything to give him. They're, they're out. They don't have, they have nothing. To which, verse 8, the servant responds again, and the language here covers the statement just a little bit. You can feel it if you're looking at the NAS, perhaps. He says, Behold, I have in my hand some silver, but the same word there is the word down in verse 20, for the donkeys have been found. It's that same word in the same form, have been found. So really, behold, some silver has been found. Like, we don't have anything to give him. Behold, some silver has been found. We do. Let's give this to him. Great idea, let's go into the city. And they come to the city, they just happen to arrive at just that time of day when the women would come out to draw water. And they ask them, is the seer home? You know, he happens to be. He just now has arrived. And if you hurry, right up ahead, you just might not catch him because he is just now heading to the feast that is up outside of the city. Now, it's a feast. That, it's a private feast. Not everybody in town's involved, obviously. He only invited a few people to it. There's something special going on there, a sacrifice and a feast for some reason or another. And we know that the prophet's heading to it and the people won't eat till he gets there. So he's hurrying on his way. And if you press on just ahead, you might run into him. Thank you very much. And they go. And just as they get to the city gate, they saw, who was it? Up till now, unnamed. So to kind of keep us in the dark about all this and to present it as if it is something totally unknown to, Sam, to Saul. They bump into, who is it? Samuel. Of course, Saul doesn't know him and says, have you seen the prophet? Do you know where the prophet lives? Actually, that's me. Hey! What do you know? Pause and stop and think about this. So far you could describe this as plain old ordinary life with a bit of coincidence mixed in. They lost something which they obviously had to go find and try as they might that didn't work. And then they have kind of a long shot idea, but that won't work. Oh yeah, it will. And they go and they bump into some women who tell them that, yeah, you're, you're in luck. The prophet is here and they find him. Ordinary life. Pretty lucky people. It just happened to arrive, coming into the gate, as he just happens to be going out of the gate. If they are 30 seconds early or late, they miss him. What a coincidence. A journey that began days ago and has taken them over hill and dale and through briars and through wood patches and down main roads and talking to women looking at near a well has just so happened to right at that moment bring them face to face with a guy named Samuel. Man, they are lucky. Of course not. Verses 15, 16, and 17 tell us what's really going on. 
The original language here creates an even more pronounced break, but this is something that you need to look for as you're reading your Bible. As you're reading your Bible, and particularly as you're reading through stories, watch for things like breaks in the flow of the story and changes in perspective. And at 15, you get a big one. Up through 14, we're following Saul and his servant. And then in 15, we get a break and we move back a day and we switch to God and Samuel. That should tell you something important is there. And if you could look at it in the Hebrew, you'd realize suddenly the Lord appears because the first word of verse 15 in Hebrew is the Lord. The Lord revealed to Samuel the day before Something's going to happen tomorrow. I'm sending to you a particular man that I have chosen to be king. Now, he's called prince or leader there. It's a word that's sometimes used, actually often used, to describe a crown prince. One who is not yet king, but is destined to be king. And so he could be talking about the fact that you're going to anoint him, but he's not going to be king for a couple more chapters. Or it could be emphasizing that he's going to be king, but always beneath the kingship of God. Second in command, always. Either way, what he's meaning is that this is the guy that is the answer to the problem of chapter 8. And I'm sending him to you about this time tomorrow. And you'll know when he comes because I'm going to point him out to you. He had heard his people's cry. Reminiscent of how God heard the cry of his people when they were in Egypt. And he was sending his chosen answer to Samuel. And he did it at just the right time, in just the right place, and he told Samuel, this is him talking to you right now. So Samuel introduces himself, and he invites Saul along to the feast, promising him that tomorrow, tomorrow morning, he's going to tell him everything that's on his mind, which might seem to us to be something related to the donkeys, until he right away tells him about the donkeys. And don't worry about them. He's meaning something else that's on your mind. We're going to talk about that tomorrow. Probably, given where the conversation goes, probably meaning that on the back burner of Saul's mind is the same thing that's on the back burner of every other Israelite's mind. Leadership, rule, and king. Probably thinking about that and wondering about that. Because the next sentence he says, and the one that all of Israel desires, who is it but you and your father's house? How can that be me? I'm a Benjaminite. The smallest tribe, almost wiped out in the book of Judges, you'll recall. How can I be the answer? How can my house be the answer to Israel looking for a powerful leader? Well, we'll talk about that later. Right now we've got a feast to get to. A feast that Samuel had already planned and had already invited 30 people to, almost certainly leaders of the area, and had even gone so far as to set aside a chair at the head of the table and the choice portion of meat set aside in the kitchen. Set aside for the main guest, who is, what do you know, the only person who didn't know he was going to a feast when he left home. Samuel hurries him along. They come into the room and pushes the chair under him at the head of the table. This is set for you. Here's a choice portion of meat for you. He's beginning to set him aside as leader and as ruler of the people. And later they go home and sleep and rise the next day to journey on. Where Samuel then chooses to make known the word of the Lord to Saul. But that's for later. This chapter is all about a profound display of the Lord and how he works in the world. And the end towards which he's working in the world. I'm going to make two observations along that path. It shows us the Lord and what he's doing and why he's doing it. I'm going to start with the why. First observation. The Lord is full of mercy to do good to his people. The Lord is full of mercy to do good to his people. That is, mercy in order to do good. 
So the mercy is not the good I'm talking about. The mercy is to do good. And it's a particular kind of good, as we'll see. This is not the idea that gets the main amount of text space, but it's the why that stands behind all the text. The reason is most clearly seen in verses 16 and 17, as well as in 20 and 21. The Lord had chosen Saul and is sending him to Samuel so that Saul can be prince, so that he can be king over the people. And if we read that, we might be tempted to ask a question with chapter, seven, with chapter 8 in mind. Why would God do this? Why is God cooperating and bringing them this king? He's setting aside this guy to make him king. Why? Wasn't it an evil thing when they requested a king? Why would God cooperate? And if we still think in chapter 8, we might be tempted to answer our own question with, oh, sure, okay, he's going to bring them a king to afflict them. Like chapter 8, verses 10 through 18 talked about. He's going to bring them, you want a king? Very well, here you go. Here's a king who will take, 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 take from you, like we saw last week. And if we thought like that, we'd be partly right. Because those things are in chapter 8. It was wrong to ask for a king. It was sin. It was a rejection of the Lord. And God did point out that he is going to bring a king, and those kings would be misery eventually. It said it would lead to the enslavement of the people. It would lead to sorrow upon sorrow. And God meant to do that, to teach them, to shape them. We talked about that last week. Yes, absolutely. But that's not the whole truth. And there's another different reason in this text. We begin to see the other reason that Saul is brought to be king when we are introduced to Saul, and we find that he's actually a decent guy. We think about the end of Saul's life, but the beginning here, he's a fine young man, strong, humble, obedient to his father, which is saying something. Sons in this book are not obedient to their fathers. Saul is. God raises up someone, and if he was looking to afflict them, he could have picked somebody a lot worse than Saul. But more than just analyzing Saul, evaluating him, we need to look at verses 16 and 17. Because there God tells us the question straight up. Why is God raising up Saul not to afflict, middle of verse 16, to deliver? You shall anoint him, and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. God is raising up a king to save his people, not to punish them, not to afflict them, to deliver them. Why? Still right there in the same verse. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Like I saw my people, my my covenant people, like I saw them in Egypt, afflicted and downcast, Sad, sorry, hurting, in need, helpless. I I see them. My eye is upon them. And I care about them. And I hear their cry coming up to me. And they're languishing day after day. And I must act to save them. Yes, they are a hard people. Stiff-necked and rebellious. They do not believe. I know. But I care about them. So I'm going to act to save them. That is mercy straight through from start to finish because what they deserve is something radically other. You read chapter 8 and you say, what? And God's answer is, but they cry out to me and I care about them. It's mercy. God, who is rich in mercy, says, I see them, and I hear them, and I care about them. Not, in the words of Deuteronomy 7, because they are a strong people, or a numerous people, or a powerful people, but because I I love them, because I have chosen to love them. says that in Deuteronomy 7. Not, in the words of Deuteronomy 9, because they are righteous or good. They are not righteous. They are very clearly not righteous. Deuteronomy 9 repeats that again and again and again and again and again but because I love them. Why? Because I love them. Why? Because I chose to love them. 
Not because they deserve it. Not because of what they would do, but because of, I love them. Despite who they are, despite what they will do, I care for my people. That is the God of mercy. Amazing. It is amazing to look at this God. Remarkable to read chapter 8 and then come to chapter 9 and see what God does and why He says He does it. He does that same thing for us today. He is still that God of mercy today. Towards all the world, God turns a merciful face slow to anger and abounding in compassionate, patient love. Doing good even to those who hate Him. Sending rain and sun and giving shelter and food even to those who want nothing to do with Him and deserve from Him something radically other. Behold the mercy of God who day after day holds back His judgment yet again and in its place gives life and breath. And perhaps you sit here as an object of His restraining mercy, deserving something radically other, but He has not yet let that fall on you, but instead brings you here to listen again, or perhaps for the very first time, to the news about a God who is good, and a God who promises to everyone, every man and woman and child, to every single person on the planet who cries out to Him humbly in submission and in surrendered hope, Help! He promises, I will take on myself your burden and I will forgive your sin. He is a God of mercy. He promises in a great and amazing offer that is made good in one great and amazing king. And I emphasize one great and amazing king. Do not be confused by this. There are some people who want to turn the mercy of God into a credit card that you can spend at any store you like. The mercy of God is to give you a single offer that can be redeemed only in Christ. The mercy of God is not wide open for you to use as you choose when and where you like. The mercy of God says, there is a way. His name is Jesus. I sent my Son to earth to go to the cross to offer a way. And He stands and says to everyone, to all who hear me, to all who are weary and heavy laden, come, take my yoke, and I'll give you rest. In other words, come and submit to me. Come and trust me. I will be merciful. He will do you great good. Do not scorn His mercy. Do not reject it because He is not merciful forever. He is slow to anger, not never angering. The Bible also says that there is a day appointed for judgment. And at that day of judgment, there is justice, not mercy. He's a just judge. He offers mercy now. He offers mercy now. Come. Most of us have tasted the mercy of God in the saving cross of Christ. And you realize that He chose you in mercy not because of anything you had done or would do, despite you, in fact. That's why it's mercy. 
because we are rebels through and through. But he chose us in mercy and he saved us in mercy and even still today faces us and interacts with us and deals with us in mercy. So I'm talking to Christians here now and I want to make a point to to each of us because I'm working on the, the idea mercy to do us good. The mercy is not the good I'm talking about. The mercy is to do us good. Well, what is that for you, Christian? Certainly it includes your salvation, the change in your eternal destiny. But there's more. I want to try to make us each, so I guess make you aware of something, call it to mind for you. Are, are, and I want to preface this, are we saved ones? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Are we saints then because of the cross of Christ? Yes. But I wonder, brother, sister, are you able to reckon with, are you able to see some of, identify, put your finger on, face, some of the dark depths of your own soul that still resist his reign and rule? Because it is there. More than you realize. Do you see some of it? Do you see the parts of you that still live in chapter 8? Saying, give me something I can get my hands on to secure myself and protect myself that I can order to make my life work and will deliver me from having to trust him. There's a part of you that still lives there, that still wants to be autonomous, master and commander of your own life. Judge of yourself and of everyone else. It's there. You are still lured somewhere in there. Do you see it? You are still lured by that ancient enemy of your soul who sidles up next to you and whispers insidiously the question, is he really God? And is he really good? Is he really to be trusted? Is he really to be obeyed? Is he really to be followed? Will he really come through for you? Does he really care about you? Implying, no. Take care of it yourself. That's being whispered to you all the time. And if you don't realize that, you're in greater danger. There is a message being whispered to you that has a receiver. There, to do it like that, there's, there's an FM signal coming and you have an FM receiver inside of you. You can hear that. You will respond to it. Watch out. To listen to that is pain and death and loss. You are prone to wander. Like little children, so often we, we wander away and, and when called back, we respond either in fury, shaking our little puny fists, or we pout quietly. So what is, your, what, what is it for you? Where, where's your sin? Where's your struggle? Do you see it? What of the whispering gains traction in your life? It's there. Where are you defeated and downcast? Or where are you proud and demanding? Where are you perplexed and worried? Look in those places. Those are the places where you'll, you'll uncover. This is where I'm discontent with God's reign. This is where I am inclined to go my own way. Look under your discontent. Look under your fear. Look under your worry. Look under your anger. Look under your pride. You'll find it there. You need a king to rule over you. That's hard to say to Americans. 
we don't like that idea. We, we don't like the idea of anybody ruling over us. Which is to say, I, I think, that we have some mix of uh, a good appreciation of the freedom that comes in God and a warped, twisted sense of autonomy that comes from the flesh. And I think this one has become dominant in our culture. You need a king to rule over you. And how sweet this is. How sweet this is. How good this is. What does God in mercy do to you, do for you? In all of the dark places, in all of the resisting of Him, in all of the listening to His accuser, to your accuser, what does He do to you, for you, in mercy, in glorious love? This is the good that He does to you. He works always in every moment and in every circumstance to raise up in your life and to raise up over you the king that you desperately need and in fact the ruler that you were made for and want. To raise up over you someone who will give commanding leadership and guidance and sheltering protection and... In that, do not let that fall on you heavy, but realize that and in that is glorious freedom and glorious joy, gladness forevermore. It is like a fence around a playground that lets people play all the way to the edges. Because there's something that will keep them from the street. That is the reign of God over you. Will, will, will guide and will structure and you will find in that life and joy and hope. You need Him. And God works always in everything to raise Him up over you and bring you in under Him, which is great, great good for you. Great good for you. There's hope for you, Christian, because this is the kind of God you have, not a God who responds in wrath to your rebellion. He's done with the wrath question for you. It's over. Which means he's done with the punishment, if you think of punishment as anger, as wrath, as a there. It means he's done with that question for you. And instead, in everything, He is working to do you this good to bring you into line with, beneath King Jesus' reign. That is a good thing. That is a very, very good thing. Mercifully given to you. And He is always doing it even when you have no idea whatsoever that's what's going on. And that's what brings us to the second point. The second observation is one that stands more in the forefront of this passage and gets more of the text, but it's driven by the other one, which is why I start there. God mercifully does good to us by providentially controlling all things. He mercifully does good to us, the first point, by providentially controlling all things. It's all over this passage, which you'll note, for the most part, reads just like ordinary life. Who would guess that the Lord is doing anything when they find out that the donkeys are gone. Who would guess the Lord is, is anywhere in the picture at all as Saul's packing his bag to go chase him, calls up the servant, gets their instructions, makes a plan. Who would suspect that the mighty hand of God is at work as the search party arrives at the city, as it finds some silver, as it comes upon the woman at just the right time to meet Samuel? All of this is telling us something. It's displaying for us the providence of God 
as he does this merciful good of bringing to his people Israel a delivering king. Showing us the providence of God. So they don't miss it all being shown. Verses 15, 16, and 17 make it explicit. In case you're just reading it and not, and not noticing the coincidence, the divine coincidence, he, he tells us, 15, 16, 17, the Lord said, I will send, not he is coming. This is not about God simply knowing what people are doing or will do. It is about God doing it. You need to be clear on that. God says, I will send and am in fact already in the process of sending to you the one that I have chosen to be the mercy agent, to be the king. You, Samuel, just invite the guests, go about your business, and I will let you know when I put him in front of you. You won't be able to miss him. That's God. That's God's providence. You might recall the word providence. I've used this word before. Providence is the word used to describe how God carries out. This is something like a definition. I'm going to write this down. How God carries out his own determined purposes and goals. Providence is describing God carrying out his own determined purposes and goals through the ordinary behaviors and actions of secondary agents. So God's doing his plan, and it's a plan, not a response, it's a plan, through the ordinary actions of secondary agents. He's the primary agent, and they are secondary agents, acting and doing. So he gets his agenda done by using ordinary agents like people and animals and weather patterns, etc., just doing what they do. As they think about things, as they respond to instinct, they respond to the circumstances, the environment around them in the course of action, they act, which is exactly how God planned it and accomplishes his purposes. So a miracle, then, is not providence, because a miracle is intervening in and changing the ordinary circumstances, the ordinary behaviors. A miracle is not providence. God uses miracles, too. But 99.99% of the time, he runs his world by providence. Here we see people and animals in particular, all according to their particular natures, doing what they do when faced with what they're faced with, and all of it becomes a complex web, and we're just touching the tip of it. We could also ask, how was it that the donkeys got out? And why is it that donkeys wander? And why did they wander this way and that so that they didn't find him on the first day? God controlled all that too through the nature and instincts of donkeys and the carelessness of a servant or the wind that blew the gate open or who knows. It's a vastly complex web. God weaving it together. All of it ordinary. None of it miraculous. All of it ordained by God to seat Saul at the table with the 30 leaders. That's the plan. It's not reactive. God didn't find Saul there and then figure out what to do. So what we have is the Lord with a plan that he executes through people who have no idea, for the most part, Samuel understands he's part of it, most people have no idea they're a part of it. That's God providentially working, in this case, to do good to his people by bringing them a delivering king. Just like he's done with us. He's providentially doing good to bring us a king. And I could talk about him. We'll just mention how he providentially worked to bring Christ 
and that Christ would be crucified exactly as planned. We could read Acts 4.2 if you want to jot down a verse. Acts 4.2 People, jealous and angry and sinful, rejected Christ and crucified Him, doing what the hand and the plan of God had predestined to happen, says Acts 4.2. And we could talk about how God has providentially worked so that you, if, if, if you're not a believer, you're sitting here, that you've heard this news. How is it that you ended up here? You made decisions. You acted. Yes, God planned it so that you are sitting here to hear this. But I think there's, there's one point that I want to consider, not just how God providentially provided a crucified Messiah to save or how God works to bring us to faith, but I want to talk about, in a few minutes that I have here, something that I find uh, more compelling and wonderfully merciful because it is at work every day in my life, every day in your life. It's how he is providentially at work to do the first point. To bring you into the fuller experience of the reign of this king. He is providentially working, Christian, I'm talking to you, in your life every day and in everything to do that good to you. Here's what I mean. We tend to read a story like this and think it describes just the biggies in life. That's what God does when he wants to raise up a king or send the Messiah or save somebody or maybe something like bring somebody into contact with a person who be their spouse or maybe bring about a pregnancy or, or something important. The biggies. But it's not just the biggies. God is always at work to do you good, Christian. He is always controlling everything in the world. Providentially, we are all acting and thinking and reacting and all the animals in the world are acting and thinking and reacting and all the plants in the world are growing according to their design. All the weather patterns in the world are working just like, you know, when a high front moves in, it's because the weatherman can explain it. There are reasons. It's all ordinary actions. All of it directed by God in every single point. He's providentially at work in everything all across the board. Working all things together for your good, Christian. Which means there are no throwaway moments. They all matter. They all are shaping you. When you get up in the morning and discover the donkeys have escaped, or that the dog got out, the tire is flat, the child has a fever, it's snowed, your guy won the election, or didn't, or nothing remarkable that you can identify at all happened. That all of that, every single bit of it, unremarkable as it may be, is God at work to shape you, to make you more like Christ, to bring the reign of Christ to your heart more deeply and sweetly and joyfully. It is the Lord looking at you and seeing you and hearing the quiet cry of your heart. Even if you're whistling on a sunshiny day with no problems, you have those problems. You don't think you have any problems. Yes, you do. I asked you, can you see some of them? He sees all of them. He looks upon you, even if gloriously, wonderfully, happily. Today is great. This week is wonderful. He still sees you and still knows your need. And still in mercy is still taking every single moment to work it to make you what you should be, what you must be for your full joy. We very often are content. We say, if God would just leave me like this for the next 50 years, I'd be great. And He says, no, no, I want more than that for you. I will not leave you like this for 50 years. That would be pitiful. 
I want to make you more. I want to work in you to change you, to move you out of this place that is comfortable and take you to a better place, to do good to you. Oftentimes, we will call that mean, and he will call that love. And he is ruthless, relentless in his merciful love to us. Don't you hate that? And don't you love that? We are often clinging on to our lives, particularly if they're going as we think well. We are, we are clinging on to our lives and saying, don't take that away. Don't, no, don't do that. And he says, like any parent who's had a child knows, I have to. To do you good. No, you cannot eat another one of those sweets before dinner. We know it plain as day with kids, don't we? How much wiser is our Lord? He's at work in every single moment, in every single circumstance. There are no throwaways, there are no randoms in everything. It was prayed earlier, even in the hardships. I would say even perhaps particularly in the hardships. He's at work to work out in us His salvation. Yes, we have to work. Talk about that in one second. But we first must see He is at work to will and to work His good pleasure, His good goals, His salvation in us, His conforming of us to Christ by His Spirit. He is. And it is mercy and grace and love and good for our joy and gladness from start to finish because He is God and because He is good. We have to work out our salvation, says Philippians 2, yes. But what that looks like is not terror and slavish effort. It is simply obedient wisdom and trust. We are very much in life like Saul here, very much like Israel. We ask for what we know we need. We ask what the word of the Lord says. We do it as best we can submitted to him and trust that he will work out what he wants to work out. That last little bit there is, I think, more important than the time I've given it. Because if you begin to think about God at work to change you, there can become and you begin to think about work out your salvation, there can become a sense of, of striving, of, of working, of, of yearning for something and reaching out. And, and that can easily get us kind of like sideways trying to force something through a tube. It doesn't fit that way. In this passage, God is bringing his king. And they have to be active. So we have to be active. But it's a trusting action. It's an obedient action that recognizes, and you will do what you will do, when you will do it, how you will do it. Saul can't work this out. Israel can't work this out. God does. Our job is to trust him, obey what is clear, repent when we fail, and take another step ahead. And take another step ahead. And think with the mind, with wisdom influencing it, should I go left or right here to look for the donkeys? Left. No. Right. 
and trust that behind it all, God will work it out. So do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. Do not be fearful and fretting. Do not believe that you sanctify yourself. Trust Him. He is at work to raise up His King's reign over His people. Rest in that, please. For your good, rest in that. Give some thought to it. Ask where He wants you to rest. Ask where He wants you to work. Maybe you need to repent of something. As we move towards communion, take a moment, talk to Him and say, What about me, Lord? And we'll move to communion in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 205-254-1111.